0: Well, if you have your Bibles, uh, I'm going to ask you to try to turn to Zephaniah. And uh, here, I'll give you a little help. You go to Matthew, and then you're going to go back three books. Now, here's the tricky part. You're going to pass Zechariah, just keep going, to Zephaniah. I cheated. I put my bookmark in there. We're going to start a series in Zephaniah, and if you know nothing about the Bible, if you're watching you're visiting, and you're like going, Zephyr, what? Um, let me just tell you this. There's people that have been in the church their whole lives, and they're asking the same question that you are. They're just as confused. And so we're going to jump into this Old Testament prophet, and most of you know nothing about it, and that's okay. Uh, I know that the, one of the small groups did some series on the minor prophets, and so Larry uh, Stensis or Rick Jones or, or Al Caravon probably taught a taught through Zephaniah, so hopefully i don 't I don't disagree with them too much in my interpretation um, and so we 're just going to jump in here, and as you 're looking for that, I'll just tell a little personal story. Many of you know this: we got a puppy in December, and uh, uh, we just we lost one of the greatest dogs that i 've ever had to cancer in November, and we got a puppy in december and and so we went from a really well-trained, mellow dog to a not-trained, hyperactive puppy. And our life has been a little bit chaotic. And one of the things that you've got to teach a puppy is to make it through the night without making a mess and sleeping. And so one of the ways that people have always taught this is by putting a dog in a kennel at night. And we have never been very good kennel-trained uh, adults, to the puppies that we've had, but we were like, we're going to do it. We're going to, we're going to use the kennel. And man, those dogs just cry and whimper, bark. And after a couple of nights, just because I wanted to sleep, I made the mistake of grabbing the dog and putting it in the bed. (laughs) And you know what? The dog went right to sleep. But it's now doubled, almost tripled in size. And uh, my wife, just this last week, she said, enough is enough. This dog needs to go somewhere else. And, you know, our, our, we, to uh, be honest with you, our last dog slept in the bed, but it was well-trained. When I would say, get out, the dog would get down and go to its bed. When I would say, scooch, this is true, we would say, scooch. And the dog would stand up, and it would do a couple turns. Then you could kind of find a spot in the bed that you wanted The puppy does not get down. The puppy does not scooch. In fact, the puppy discovered that we had pillows, and he thought that was pretty cool. So he started moving up the head of the bed. So my wife said, that's enough. And we put the the puppy in the kennel and and, um, it cried. And did. night two of this, we're on the internet trying to learn things at 2 o'clock in the morning. And night three, it actually slept through the night. It actually, it actually went to bed. But I was so geared up for a fight that I didn't sleep. And so I had three nights this week without sleep. And I'm teaching through this book on Zephaniah. And you're going, how is he going to make the tie here? You know, when we get off track, the longer that we go off track, the harder it is to repent and come back to where we are. And Zephaniah is written to a group of people who've gotten off track. And it's a call to repentance. It's a call to say, hey, you, if you keep down this road, this is what's going to happen. And so we're going to jump it in. Let me read the first chapter. We're going to try to do the whole first chapter today. And, uh, and it's going to be really unfamiliar language. Let's read it. And then what we're going to do is we're going to jump into an introduction of the prophets and Zephaniah specifically. And then we're going to look at the end of things, which Zephaniah does. And then we're going to talk about living in light of the end of things. So an introduction, looking at the end of things, and then living in light of the end of things. Zephaniah, the word of the Lord came to Zephaniah, son of Cushi, son of Gilda, son of Amariah, son of Hezekiah, in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah. I will utterly sweep away everything from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. Do you get the tone of Zephaniah right now? Okay, so, you know, this is the point where mom has had enough, right? You, you, you know not to push one more button, okay? I will sweep away man and beast. I will sweep away the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea and the rubble with the wicked. I will cut off mankind from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against the inhabitants of Jerusalem. I will cut off from this place the remnant of Baal, and the name of the adulterous priests along uh, with the priests, those who bow down on the roofs to the host of the heavens, those who bow down and swear to the Lord, and yet, Swear by Milcom, those who have turned back from following the Lord, who do not seek the Lord or inquire of him. Be silent before the Lord God, for the day of the Lord is near. The Lord has prepared a sacrifice and consecrated his guests. And on that day of the Lord's sacrifice, I will punish the officials and the king's sons and all who array themselves in foreign attire on that day, I will punish everyone who leaps over the threshold, those who fill the master's house with violence and fraud. On that day, declares the Lord, a cry will be heard from the fish gate, a wail from the second quarter, a loud crash from the hills. Wail, O oh, inhibitants of Mortar, for the traitors are no more. All who weigh out silver are cut off. At that time, I will search Jerusalem with lamps, And I will punish the men who are complacent. Those who say in their hearts, the Lord will not do good, nor will he do ill. Their goods shall be plundered and their houses laid waste. Though they build houses, they shall not inhabit them. Though they plant vineyards, they shall not drink wine from them. The great day of the Lord is near. Near and hastening fast. The sound of the day of the Lord uh, is bitter The mighty man cries aloud there. Day of wrath is that day. A day of distress and anguish. A day of ruin and devastation. A day of darkness and thick darkness. A day of trumpet blasts and battle cries against the fortified cities and against the lofty battlements. I will bring distress on mankind so that they shall walk like the blind because they have sinned against the Lord. Their blood shall be poured out like dust and their flesh like dung. Neither their silver nor their gold shall be able to deliver them. On the day of the wrath of the Lord and the fire of his jealousy, all the earth shall be consumed. For a full and sudden end he will make all the inhabitants of the earth. What a start! The first chapter here, 18 verses, it actually, this movement of Zephaniah's sermon goes into the first four verses of chapter two, but there's where the meat is on the bone. There's a little bit of hope in chapter two. So I'm going to leave that for next week. Let me do just a little introduction to the prophets in Zephaniah, and let me just say this. Let's just deal with with one of the, the elephants in the room. This is hard stuff. These are are not easy reads. We don't read this and go, oh, I know what he's talking about. We avoid this. When we're doing the Old Testament reading, we skim through this part. The prophets are difficult to read. And here, I'm just going to lay this out here. Here's why they're difficult to read. First of all, we, we don't understand the historical context. Most of us did not have Israel's history in our history classes. And so we go, oh, Zephaniah, I don't know what's happening at all around this. And so in the Bible, in your Old Testament section of your Bible, you have twelve or 17 books of the prophets. And five of them are called major prophets. Nothing more major about them except that they're longer. Okay, I, I, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel and Lamentations are usually considered the five major prophets. Then there are 12, what we call minor prophets, shorter. Uh, Although that's not exactly true. I mean, Lamentations is pretty short compared to Zechariah, but it's just how people kind of mapped it out. Now, there's actually a division with even within these minor prophets. Um, The first... uh, 1 through 9 of these minor prophets, if you went to your table of contents and just kind of picked it up after uh, Ezekiel, Daniel, you've got Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah. Those 9 are all written before the exile of Judah. And then the next uh, 10 through 12 come after the exile. And Zephaniah, even though actually Haggai was written later, it kind of serves as the summary of the prophets. Now, I've shared this chart in different classes that I've taught, and you guys can't get all this, and you probably can't see it. But basically, part of Israel's history, right, is we've got creation and then the fall. And God comes in and he says, um, there's going to be a seed of Eve that is going to crush the head of the serpent and be bitten in the the ankle, a death blow to the ankle, and we're waiting for the seed, and we're following the story through, and the flood, and and Tower of Babel, and then God chooses this this one man to say that that all the nations are going to be blessed through you, Abraham. And so we're following this story of of this group of people, and the problem is, Abraham doesn't have any kids, and he's old, and he's past childbearing years, but there's this miraculous birth of Isaac, and then Isaac has two sons, Jacob and Esau, and those two brothers don't get along and they fight all the time. And Jacob is a deceiver and he deceives his brother and he has to run because his brother wants to kill him. And he goes, lives with his great uncle and his great uncle deceives him and gives him two wives. And they start having a child bearing contest to win his love. And he ends up with 12 sons who also are totally dysfunctional. And they sell one of their brothers into slavery and and because of that, the, Joseph is able to save the, his brothers. And they, this group, this family group, ends up in Egypt where they later become slaves. And God sends Moses and he delivers them. And they come out of the nation. They get to the promised land. And they go, ooh, we're here. No, they, they get here and go, wait, we, we can't do that. So God sends them back into the wilderness for 40 years. And the next generation comes in and goes into the promised land and conquers it. And we have the time of the judges And then we have three kings, Saul, David, and Solomon. And then the next king ends up splitting these tribes into two nations, Israel in the north and Judah in the south. And these prophets are written to bring Israel back to repentance. Never works. And these prophets are written to bring Judah back to repentance. And sometimes they do, and sometimes they don't. And so that's where we're picking up this this story. The other reason why we really have trouble reading the prophets is because we don't understand the immediate context. Look at verse 1. The word of the Lord came to Zephaniah, and look, I'm professionally trained. I went to seminary, and what I tried to do is read over these names as quick as possible. I listened to uh, the Bible on, on uh, the internet. I listened to it a couple times trying to get these names, but there's, you know, a good hour and a half between those, and we, we read these names, and it means nothing. So let me give you a little background. Zephaniah's name means the Lord hides. And he has this genealogy in here. And let me just say that his genealogy is unique. It's meant to catch your attention. And you go, yeah, genealogies, they always catch my attention, Dave. Look, usually a prophet would just say, uh, Zephaniah, the son of, and name somebody. In extreme circumstances, when somebody is trying to make a point, they will go back three generations. Zephaniah goes back four generations. And the fourth one is Hezekiah. And so most, uh, which Hezekiah is a name that probably many little kids had growing up in Jerusalem, right? Not, Not a big deal, but Hezekiah was one of the great reformer kings, too. And so most commentators would say he goes back four generations because he's trying to show that he's related to Hezekiah, the king, which puts Zephaniah in the ruling class, the upper class of Jerusalem, which is interesting because that's who he speaks to in the book of Zephaniah. And so I think he goes back there on purpose. And then we have Josiah. And so most of you um, don't know who Josiah is. Josiah is uh, one of the later kings. In fact, there was only four kings after Josiah, and two of them only ruled for three months, okay? So uh, we're, we're right towards the end. There's about 22 years after Josiah's reign until uh, Judah goes into captivity in Babylon. He's the last good king of Israel. He's the last great reformer king of Israel. Uh, he started ruling when he was eight, Okay, boy, that seems to be kind of a problem. But he was eight years old when he became king. And it says at 18, so 10 years into his reign, they they found some of the law hidden in the temple that they hadn't read in a long time. And they read it, just like it's kind of a repeat of Hezekiah. They read it and they repent. And he calls the people to repentance. And so there's a great revival halfway through Josiah's reign. And he reigns about another 10 years or so, and then uh, he, gets, uh, he gets stuck in his head that he's going to go fight somebody else's battle, and he gets killed in battle. And so he died fairly young, at like 30. So one of the things that's questionable about Zephaniah that, that commentators argue about is, did Zephaniah write this before the Great Revival or after? We don't Now, those who argue, uh, again, uh, for after, uh, point out verse 4, where it says, I will cut off from this place the remnant of Baal. And so they said, well, there's only a remnant there because Josiah has already cleared some out. Um, I like to say that I think Josiah was part of this revival. He was part of preparing the people's hearts for what was going to be read and led them to repentance. And that's probably because I just believe in the art of preaching. Another reason why we struggle with the prophets is that we really don't understand the style of writing. And Hebrew po- the, much of the prophets are written in Hebrew poetry. And so let me give you just like, I'm sure you are going, man, I hope I can go to church today and get a lesson on Hebrew poetry. And so those of you who are ready for that, let's, let's just dive into that. Hebrew poetry, it doesn't rhyme, it's not metered. Um, it's called, it, it uses a form of, of writing called parallelism. And that's where the first line relates somehow to the second line. And so, for example, uh, for Sheol does not thank you. Death does not praise you. Notice, Sheol and death, the argument, and thank you and praise. Just kind of a repeat of the first line. That's Hebrew poetry. The most common uh, way of Hebrew poetry, or one of the most common ways, is where it just repeats, like we just said. Here's Psalm 82.3, give justice to the weak and to the fatherless maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. It's repeating the same line using different words. So here's a little tip for you, no extra charge for this. When you're reading through the Psalms and you're having trouble understanding something, look at the next line and see if it gives you a clue to what the first line might be meaning or vice versa. Now, another way that Hebrew poetry works is that it just builds or completes the first line. So here's one that you're familiar with. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Why shall you not want? Because the Lord is my shepherd. What does what the Lord being your shepherd mean? It means that I shall not lie. It just builds on each other. Now, as it kind of builds on each other, uh, one line uh, in, in the second. Now, sometimes they contrast. Sometimes there's all, there's all sorts of different. That's just a basic introduction. There's probably about 10 more different ways line one relates to line two. But then they get a little bit more complex. And... Um, And here's where you're probably not going to see this when you're reading through this. But let me give you an example. Here's the first few verses that we read. I will utterly sweep everything from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I will sweep away the man and the beast. I will sweep away the birds of the heaven and the fish of the sea, the rebel of the wicked. Um, And so what we see here is, okay, there's this comprehensive line. I'm going to destroy everything. And then he gets a little bit more specific. Human and animal creation And he gives the moral reason why. Uh, And and another way of reading this line is the wicked will only have the heaps of rubble. It's it's this idea that the the wicked are the one that's causing this. Now, we have this ABC line thing here. Now, what we have is in the next lines of the poem, here we go. I will cut off mankind from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And I will cut off from this place the remnant of Baal and the name of the idolatrous priests. And so again, we have this comprehensive, all of mankind. And then he gets specific, specifically here, Jerusalem. And then he gives the moral reason why, it's because of the religious leaders. And you see, he just just took two little poems and put them all together. Now, the best way to describe this um, is Amanda Gorman. She was the young gal who shared the poetry at Biden's inaugural speech, and I think she did one for the Super Bowl too. Th- would, these sermons were much more like that. They, they might have even been sung to a certain degree. Uh, they're much, th- these sermons are very complex Hebrew poetry. And so most of us don't open up God's word and say, i want to read some Hebrew poetry today. And so that's where we're at. And, and the other reason why we really struggle with the prophets is we don't understand all the themes that are found in them. Things like the day of the Lord. And we say, well, justice and mercy, what do we do with when God is talking with Israel about the justice, injustices that they're doing? How does that apply to our culture? And because we don't want to deal with injustice, we just kind of say, well, that was Israel, but it doesn't apply to us. We, we, we don't understand this concept of the remnant, which we'll get into in the next few days. And what we have to deal with today is the wrath of God. What do we do? We're New Testament Christians. We're like, let's talk about God's mercy and the joy of the Lord. And, you know, let's, let's be happy. And, and what do we do with this wrath? This God of the Old Testament seems mad. And so we don't understand what to do with these themes. And so we just skip them. And, and really, as we read chapter 1, one of the things that I just became aware of is we just don't understand the tone. Like, we, we don't want God to be speaking like this. We want God to be gentler. And so somehow we've distinguished between the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament. I just hint, it's the same God. And so we have to deal with some of these things. So let's jump into looking at the end of things. One of the main themes of Zephaniah, and this is why I chose Zephaniah, by the way, uh, Lord willing, after uh, Easter, I was going to teach through Revelation, and I wanted to give us a little bit of a head start on that. And so the day of the Lord is a major theme uh, in in chapter 1. The day of the Lord, verse 7, "The great day is near, verse 14. he, He repeats it several times. And so just as an introduction to the day of the Lord, Uh, a few definitions, a day of wrath and destruction for rebellious individuals and nations, and at the same time, a day of salvation and deliverance for his people. Another person wrote, the day of the Lord is a period of time which God will deal with the wicked men directly and dramatically in fearful judgment. When we think of the day of the Lord, those of you who've been in the church, you think of Revelation. And in your Revelation understanding, Uh, Many of you have a little timeline that you've learned from some pastor or our doctrinal statement or whatever, and you're looking at it in the future, and you go, well, I think this happens, and I think this happens, and this day of the Lord. So here's just a few things just to kind of prime that a little bit. And I want to stretch your understanding of what you, maybe your little end times map that you have eventually, I want to kind of tweak with that a little bit. The, The day of the Lord is more of an event than a day. The problem is we hear day, and we go, okay, it's, it's going to be, you know, whatever. What, what day is it? May 16th? You know, whatever. And, and it's more of an event. The day of the Lord is both past and present and future. I, I forgot to put that in there. And, and what I mean by that is in, in Zephaniah here, he says in verse 7, or excuse me, verse 10, on that day, declares the Lord, a cry will be heard from the fish gate. Now, we're not talking about the pier up in Seattle here, okay? The fish gate was just a gate in Jerusalem. And he talks about the fish gate and then the second quarter and the hills. And what he's is saying is, when Babylon comes to destroy Jerusalem, you're going to hear people crying and wailing. That's something that is near. It's only about 22 years away. But then when he talks about, I will sweep everything from the face of the earth, that's future. It's revelation. And so many times he's talking about a a near event and a far off event. Uh, Same is true in Amos. Amos talks about uh, the captivity of Israel and the end. Isaiah looks to the fall of Babylon and the birth of Christ. So they just kind of, this this happening near and happening far get melded together. And if you... If you kind of mapped out chapter 1, you would see that. The day of the Lord is is about wrath. Uh, Verse uh, 15, a day of wrath is that day. He just spells it out. You can't get any clearer than that. And in some ways, the day of the Lord is both unexpected and it's clearly on its way. And the New Testament says it this way. The day of the Lord's like a thief in the night, right? Like if you knew somebody was going to rob your house, you wouldn't go to bed that night. But it's also like uh, birth pains, right? It's kind of like, oh, I think I felt something. I remember those days. Okay, I'm just, you know, first child, young dad. We had the bags packed. My wife goes, oh, and, I, and I'm like running for the bag. She's like, stop, no. Like, well, we got to go, we got to go. No, no, no. And then one morning she woke me up and she said, we got to go. Right? It's just, it's coming. And so when we talk about the day of the Lord, when we talk about chapter one here, it's really the world under God's judgment. It's the world under God's judgment. Now, I don't know if you, if you heard as I was reading that, but he's using, he's repeating words from the threat of the flood. Genesis chapter 6. It's some of the same language. I will utterly sweep away everything. I will sweep away man, beast. I will sweep away the birds of heaven. Except he goes a little bit further. In the Genesis account, he never talks about the judgment on the fish. And, And I mean, I'm sure when you mix salt water and fresh water, I'm sure it affected the fish. But here, it seems like he even goes further. And so it's the world under God's judgment. But he also then, in the next poem that we looked at, right, He focuses specifically on God's people. God's people are under judgment. Verse 4, I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against the inhabitants of Jerusalem, specifically them. If you remember in our series in 1 Peter, where Peter says, for it's time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And it begins with us. What What will the outcome be for those who do not obey the gospel of God? Look, if God is going to bring judgment on the world, he's going to start with the people who should know better. Judgment starts with his people. And so he says, I'll cut off the priests. He's saying, look, these these people are not leading God's people in the right way. And then he goes on in verse 8, and he says, I will will cut off uh, the officials' sons. Um, Where was that? I'm sorry, I, missed, I lost my place. Verse 8, yeah, there we go. And on the day of the sacrifice, I will punish the officials and the king's sons. And then he mentions the traitors. Now, this is an interesting word. Um, and it is found in verse 11. wail, O inhabitants of Mortar, for the traitors are no more. That word traitors is literally just Canaanites from the Old Testament Canaan. Canaan group. It's Canaan. Um, In some of your Bibles, it's translated merchants. Um, Probably because of the the next line trying to understand the word by the way the next line uses it, which is all who weigh out silver are cut off. And so, merchants. Um, It may very well relate to actual slave trading. Um, That that context has been brought to this word. Um, And so, he's bringing up something that is very evil in the time of Judah. And then he says specifically, I will punish the complacent. Verse 12, and I, I, your, your Bible may translate a little bit different, but um, I will punish the men who are complacent. Tho- those who say in their hearts, ah, God's not going to do good or evil. He's just kind of, he's just, he's just up there doing nothing. And so he specifically talks about the people who are under God's judgment, the priests, the officials, the traitors, and and, and the complacent. And the reason for God's judgment is clear in chapter 1. The first is just simply idolatry. And he says in verse 5, those who bow down on the roofs to the hosts of heaven, they're worshiping other gods. Okay, that's not how you worship Yahweh. And so God is looking down at Jerusalem we still have the temple here, and we have priests, and we have priests that are, that are operating somehow in the temple and leading people in worshiping other gods. And it's called idolatry. They're, they're worshiping idols. The Bible also refers to this as adultery towards God. Sorry, let me go back. It's also referred to as adultery before God. So in that same verse, those who bowed down on the roofs, verse 5, to the hosts of heaven those who bow down and swear to the Lord. So they're going up, and they're worshiping other gods, and then they're going to the temple on Saturday and, and, and swearing to the Lord. And clearly throughout the Bible, in the Old Testament, God refers to that as adultery. And it's referred to as adultery as this way. God enters into a marriage covenant with Israel in Exodus, and they break it. And so God refers, to when they're going to worship other gods, it's like It's like the spouse coming home early from work, and and finding their spouse on the couch with somebody else. That's how God feels about that. It's that repulsive to Him. And then apostasy. In verse six, He says, "They don't even seek the." There's some people that are they're not even seeking the Lord anymore. Their identity is is wrapped up in the world. Now, in verse 8, it seems pretty weird. It says, I will punish the officials and the king's son and all who array themselves in foreign attire. All right, they're buying buying clothes from the other nation. You know, what what is God upset about? I think the reality is, Israel was actually given some pretty strict dress codes, uh, and they started liking the way the Assyrians were dressing and the Babylonians were dressing. And so the rich people of the town who could afford this began to do that. Why? So that they can identify with those in leadership in these other nations that they might get overtaken by. They're trying to fit in. They want to fit in with the world more than they want to fit in with God. And so we see in verse 9, and again, hard on that day will punish everyone who leaps over the threshold. You're going, what? what? You know, and to be honest with you, we don't know 100%. Uh, it was probably some sort of Hebrew idiom, you know, some sort of catchphrase that they got that made sense to them. It doesn't really make sense to us. But fortunately, the way Hebrew poetry works, we can kind of get to the gist of the problem because we go down to the next two lines. And, and he says in there, um, uh, verse 9 again, all those who what fill their master's house with violence and fraud. It's violence and injustice that Israel keeps getting involved in. And then there's also a form of secularism. You say That's kind of a weird word to use. But when you say God is not going to do good or going to do bad, it's just kind of we don't believe that God's involved in this. And so this is the reason that God is angry. Now let's just ask ourselves. Idolatry. Oh, I don't have any idols in my house, Dave. Really? Let me put it this way. Is there anything in your life that if God took away, you would be so angry at God, you may not be able to worship him? God took your home away well, I just can't worship a God that wouldn't provide for me in that way. Family. Security. Your freedoms. If those are taken away, you're going to say, I don't even, I don't even think there is a God anymore. And if you can, if you can really start to wonder if there's something, that's, it's something that you have begun to worship. Adultery towards God. Boy, do you ever ever hedge your bets? Do you ever have a foot in both worlds? Apostasy, have you ever just got to the point where I just don't, don't, I don't believe in God. Is your identity wrapped up in the world? Violence and injustice, do you say, well, that doesn't involve me, that's a national thing and I just can just ignore that. Secularism. Have you stopped believing that God is active in this earth and in His plan? The times of God's judgment. It says that the time is near. Uh, I think in verse seven, he says, "Be silent before the Lord, for the day of the Lord is near." I want to just touch on this verse. The Lord is prepared to sacrifice. And I read that I'm like, oh, this is talking about Jesus. And after studying, I don't think it is. I, I think it's just a reminder. When you talk about sacrifice, you're just talking about there's death is required for sin. He also says that, in a sense, the time is far off because we haven't experienced verse 2 and 3. So I've been studying Revelation and, and reading books on Revelation from different points of view and challenging my own point of view. It's been really interesting And one of the conclusions that I come up with is sometimes these revelations are kind of like the kingdom of God. It's both now and not yet. When we read through these judgments, there's one sense in where the day of the Lord specifically applies to the Babylonians coming in and defeating Jerusalem. But it's a type of what happens when God's people are judged by evil nations because of their sin. And we're going to see that repeated through history. And it's going to accumulate into what is going to come about in Revelation. And sometimes when we read like the end times, we say, oh, well, that doesn't, I don't have to worry about that because I'm going to be taken up out of this. And, and, uh, and so I'm just waiting for the good times to roll. And one of the things that what we see is there may be very much times of judgment on God's people because we're acting the same way. So it does apply to us. It's a time of repeated process Of God's judgment. And so it is is coming. We also see in verses 17 and 18, let me just, I will bring distress on mankind so that they shall walk like the blind because they have sinned against the Lord. Their blood shall be poured out like dust and their flesh like dung. We really see the finality of God's judgment. We need to understand the reality of the end. And then my next point, just really briefly, is that we need to live in light of the end. If one day God is going to come and call us to an account, and by the way, Paul says, for we must all stand before the judgment seat of Christ and give an account for what is done in the body, whether good or bad. And so if God is going to come and and he's going to call his people to account, he's going to call his churches to account, then we should live in light of that today. If if you're a little kid and your mom says, wait till your dad gets home, that strikes a certain amount of fear into a kid. Usually, go to your room and wait till your dad gets home. it's at those times you begin to question the decisions you made earlier in the day. And you say to yourself, man, I really wish I had not punched my sister in the face. I see now the error of my ways. Whatever it is, right? What Zephaniah is saying, church, listen, dad is coming home. He's coming home. And you need to live in light of that. Churches, individuals. And so the judgment to come, it leads us to examine our own life. And that's why Zephaniah says in verse seven, by the way, is he reads this difficult passage and then he goes into another difficult passage. And in the middle, he says this, Be silent before the Lord. Stop talking. Stop making excuses. Stop justifying yourself. Listen. Examine your heart. One commentator said, this is where Zephaniah speaks to us. God is still the righteous judge of the universe. And he will no more tolerate sin in us than was the case with his chosen people in the Old Testament. If you think somehow God is just going to say, oh, nice try, you're good. He didn't with his chosen people in Israel. Second, the judgment to come leads us to our need for Jesus. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, every one of us. And and even those who have come to Christ, we're reminded over and over again um, that if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive our sins. So we live in this process of being fallen creatures, and we need something. We can't save ourselves, we are going to be utterly swept away. Wait, time out. How can I avoid that? There's very little hope in chapter one. Don't worry, there's some hope in chapter two. But part of the hope, the hope, is that you can't save yourself. You can't do it. But because God loved us so much, he sent his son to pay the price for our sins. Now, please understand, we are saved by grace. Not by anything that we chose to do, just by our faith in Jesus. But that doesn't give you carte blanche to just go do whatever you want to do. We still are responsible for the life that we live. And so the judgment comes and it leads us not only to our need for Jesus, but our hope in the future. I'm still bound by the sin nature. And, and the Holy Spirit is transforming me and working me and drawing me closer to his son, Jesus Christ. But I still mess up. And I long for that day when I don't have to live with that. When I am glorified. When we're living with our Savior, walking in his presence again. And I think the judgment to come leads us to mission. I mean if we know how it's going to end and we know it's not going to end well for a large group of people, wouldn't that motivate us to want to go and save them? Man, you you can't watch the news and not have your heart go out for somebody at this point in time. Let's just all admit, Texas was not ready for snow. Okay, that state was not built for that. But I... But we're watching people that don't have basic necessities. They're telling people to boil their water, and the people of Texas are like, boil the water with what power? Like, how are we supposed to boil water? I mean, it's just crazy. And you go, man, I want to go help. I want to do something. When you see the world come crashing to an end, church, it should motivate you. Let's go save the lost. Let's make an impact in our community. And the judgment to come leads us to a life based on the internal. We live with this in mind. All right, so how do we apply this devastating chapter to our life? Take time to be silent before God. God, if there be any offensive way in me, reveal it to me. Convict me of sin so I can get back on the right track. Where is my attitude off? Where are my priorities off? Where am I worshiping this world and trust? Where am I not trusting in you? And just be silent and listen. How does God, does God speak to us? He speaks to us through his spirit. He convicts us of sin, maybe in the sermon, maybe in the Bible reading, maybe through a friend. But we begin to be silent and just go, wait a second. Is that God speaking to me? think through these different idolatries and, and uh, um, adultery and, and complacency. Do we fall into any of those sins? And if so, repent. Now look, church, I, we're going to get into repentance a little bit, but the idea of repentance is different with, oh Jesus, I'm sorry. Repentance means to change and do something different. So take time to, to repent of sin and receive the gift of forgiveness. Listen, if you're listening to me, and this, the idea of the end of the world, the idea of God's judgment and God's wrath, and you just sit there going, I, I, this is scary to me. It might be scary to you because you have not received the gift of salvation through Jesus Christ. And so I would invite you just to pray to seek God. And I I promise you, as you call out to him and confess your sin and ask that that you would be under the grace of God, that you, you will experience the coming of the Holy Spirit and a change in life, maybe not just immediately, but in a way that God will begin to work through you and change you. And I'm telling you, we've talked about this in our series on discipleship things are going to get harder before they get better because satan is not going to be happy with you giving your life to jesus but let me tell you there is nothing better than resting in the grace of god his wrath is real his love is greater receive his love and enter into his rest let's pray Father, your word at times is difficult, but it's here for us to learn. And so we pray that we would deal with these concepts of your wrath and your judgment, and that it might lead us to repentance. And God, I I pray that just not for those that need to find Jesus, although we certainly pray for those that need to find Jesus. But there are those that have been in the church for a long time and have become complacent. There are those who have been in the church for a long time and don't care about the lost. There are those who have been in the church for a long time and there's habits and attitudes that have become so ingrained in them that they think that's just the way they are and that you aren't calling them to repentance. And God, we know that each day we should become be becoming more and more like your son, Jesus Christ. So I pray that we would be open as a church and as individuals into what you are calling us to change and repent of that we might glorify you. I pray for these things in Jesus' name. Amen.